0: Hi folks, this is Patrick, welcome back to Bibliology, the podcast where I speak to Bible scholars about their recent research and its implications for communities of faith. Today you'll get to hear my conversation with Dr. Cameron Howard on her new book, The Old Testament for a Complex World, How the Bible's Dynamic Testimony Points to New Life for the Church. Cameron is Associate Professor of Old Testament at Luther Seminary in Minnesota, uh, a member of the Society of Biblical Literature and a ruling elder in the Presbyterian Church, USA. She is committed to making academic biblical scholarship accessible and relevant to clergy and lay people, and so I thought there was no better guest to get for this podcast. She has a lot of unique insights and wisdom to offer the church on the question of the Old Testament's relevance, and the question of how it plays a role in our faith and practice, and I'd recommend that you buy her book if you find this conversation helpful. I'm sure it will be of great use to you. Um, you can find a link to it below in the description. Without further ado, my friends, let's get on to the episode and thanks a million for listening. Well, hello, Cameron. Nice to have you on. Welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much. I'm glad to be here.
0: I'm going to start with some light-hearted questions before we get into the Uh, real meat of the conversation, just so the audience get get to know you a bit. I've uh, found out some things about you um, through the internet. Um, Mm -hmm. So, And one of the obvious things is that you're a professor and a Bible scholar. And I'm wondering if you weren't, what what would you be and why?
1: I think I would probably be an English teacher, English literature teacher. Um, I would like to say it would be something very... uh, you know, interesting or exotic if I weren't a professor, but, um, kind of teaching is the family business. So both of my parents and my brother teach, um, English and literature at either the college or the high school level. So I know that if I hadn't taken the theological turn, I would probably, uh, still be teaching, but just, uh, in the realm of literature.
0: Okay. And what is your favorite novel?
1: Oh, gosh. That's such a great question. Um, I will say one that has been the most influential on my life, (laughs) uh, I don't know if it's my favorite exactly, um, is The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood. Mm -hmm. I read that, I think, in high school. And it actually really kind of uh, made me more interested in the Bible because of its take a kind of dystopian take on what it would mean to interpret um the bible and how the bible intersects with women's lives so
0: mm. yeah yeah she's quite a she's quite critical isn't she of, of the bible or am i incorrect on that
1: yes or at least i think critical of um some trajectories for how the bible could be interpreted
0: okay yes and and we'll get on to discussing that in, yeah. in, a, in a bit and of course, another thing about you is that you're a uh, Presbyterian, and I'm actually a, a Reform Presbyterian. So we just say that we're kind of the more hipster version of you guys. But, um, right. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> sounds about right. So have you always been a member of this denomination? And if so, why the ever strong loyalty to your tradition?
1: Yes. Um, I am, as we sometimes say, a cradle Presbyterian. I have, um, been a Presbyterian my whole life. Both of my parents separately before they had known and married each other were Presbyterians. My maternal grandfather was a Presbyterian pastor and I'm married to a PCUSA, Presbyterian Church USA, pastor. So I have been steeped in Presbyterianism and the Reformed tradition my whole life. And, um, you know, I sojourn among Lutherans. I teach at a Lutheran seminary. Mm-hmm. And in fact, much of my teaching throughout my career has been um, at, not at Presbyterian seminaries. And so there's something about being um, in community with people from other denominations that I think on the one hand gives me a deep appreciation for other traditions and what they bring. And also kind of helps me crystallize what's important to me about um, being a Presbyterian um, theologically, but also, you know, I love Presbyterian polity. Uh, I think we've got a lot of good things going for us there in the book of order. So, um, yeah, I, I I come to the Presbyterian church just kind of genetically, I suppose, but I have also found that that's where I want to stay.
0: Yeah. And um, did I catch that you're a um, you have some sort of authoritative position in the Presbyterian? I'm an
1: elder. Yes. Okay. So, okay. A ruling elder, right?
0: Versus right. Versus
1: teaching elder, the minister of Word and Sacrament.
0: Okay. Do you ever preach? I do.
1: I do um, preach on occasion, um, both in Presbyterian churches and in some other places. I actually got to preach at a baptist church for the the first time last year right before the pandemic began That was the last time i preached somewhere in person so yeah okay uh, um, i do enjoy preaching
0: okay L- last question before we get in here so um we're going to be talking about the the old testament today but briefly going to the testament that won't be the main one under discussion today and uh, of course one of the things about the old testament is that has so many stories that make you go what on earth is that but um I'm curious, what is one New Testament story that still makes you scratch your head and why?
1: Oh my goodness, there's so much in the New Testament that makes me scratch my head, Uh, partly because I don't spend as much time in it. But one thing that I, uh, well, a story that I really love is the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8. But one thing I find myself pondering a lot is what exactly it is that Philip said to the Ethiopian eunuch. Because um, the Ethiopian eunuch says, you know, reads from Isaiah. Of course, I bring this back to the Old Testament. But it seems to be reading from the Isaiah scroll and says, um, you know, about whom is the prophet speaking? Uh, or or is it the prophet or someone else? And then Philip says, you um, When, excuse me, the text says something like Philip um, began to speak and started with this scripture and proclaimed the good news about Jesus, but it doesn't say exactly what he said. And I just think there's so much space in there. You know, I mean, we can make some educated guesses based on what, you know, the author of Luke Acts says in other places, but I really love that there's this sort of gap and it doesn't solve the question for us of, what are we to do with these texts in Isaiah exactly? How do we get there from there
0: to Jesus? Well, a parallel passage to that in actually another one in Luke is, um, you know, the the Bible study they have with the with the risen Jesus. And, and I think Luke oh, says, yes. and he began to explain to them using the prophets and Moses and all how the Messiah had this had to happen to the Messiah. And you're just thinking, what is he <laughs> what what I was that not put saying? that in there yeah yes. <laughs> yeah i don't know yeah right but uh, i i understand that anyway but we'll uh, we'll get on to, to talking about your book so today we are discussing your new book and it's called the old testament for a complex world how the bible's dynamic testimony points to new life for the church and uh my first two questions are actually about the title because i found it so such a fascinating title so when you say the old testament for a complex world and um, someone might wonder when has the world not been complex and uh w- why this choice of title
1: yeah well if i'm perfectly honest it was my publisher who put this whole title together at the end of the day um after some suggestions from me but i like it i endorse it and embrace it <laughs> um and i think you've really Um, put your finger on what is the heart of the book, which is simply that the the world has always been complex and um, that uh, there's a kind of popular tendency, I think, to flatten the Bible or to try to sort of freeze it or to say that it um, is more uniform perhaps than it actually is. And so uh, we know from... (laughs) 2000 plus years of study of scripture that, um, uh, that that it does not speak uh, from one particular person or place at one particular time, but represents a lot of different ideas collected over time. And those different ideas sometimes are even in conversation with each other. And so what can it mean for us as Christian readers of scripture to lean into the complexity of the Old Testament rather than trying to run from it, which I know from my own students is sometimes the first impulse, like, oh, all of this is getting really messy. Let me just go to Jesus. But there's actually a lot of great stuff, I think, that can help us think about the state of the church today, um, from the Old Testament. So that's what I'm hoping for to kind of lean into that complexity.
0: Hmm. And and you've touched on this um, just a little bit in your answer there. But this this word dynamic that the Bible has dynamic testimony. What what do you mean by this, or what does your publisher mean by by this? Because <laughs> you know when uh, when we think of dynamic, you know it could be that it's changing or it's you know, it's it's contradictory or it could have a more you know benign term. But what exactly do you mean by it?
1: Yeah, um, it's first of all, I think of dynamic as the opposite of static. So not a kind of frozen or in one place, but indeed full of energy. And I think in the sense of changing, that is, um, there's a lot of change that is contained within it. Um, So, for example, um, I I will let me go back first to the word testimony, and then I'll circle back to dynamic, because I really like the category of testimony. I think it helps to capture the human roots of Scripture alongside the divine ones. So, um, what does it mean that real human beings who lived real lives? wrote down these texts and were trying to live in faithful relationship to their God in a very uh, difficult world um, under difficult circumstances. You know, wherever we put our pen in the biblical timeline, there was something relatively catastrophic going on. And so I think when we say testimony, um, we can can hear those human voices behind it just a little bit more clearly, the idea that they are telling their stories. Um, And so then when I put the word dynamic with it, um, I I think it's important to realize uh, dynamism both in the Old Testament and in our encounter with it. So um, we come to the Bible as different people with different experiences and identities and assumptions. Um, and so uh, we we are never sort of bringing our same self to the text twice, um, that we, are, you know, always um, can find something new or there are new insights, um, new possibilities. And we have new experiences that might change what we are able to see in scripture. So ourselves are always dynamic. But I think that the text itself has a lot of dynamism. Um, it, it maybe change changes a little bit too difficult a word to take to it, but I certainly think a lot of, of energy. And it, um, so the Old Testament, first of all, it's, it's very difficult actually to nail down what we mean by the Old Testament. So whose canon are we working with? Are we working with the Protestant canon or the Catholic canon or, you know, Orthodox canon? Um, different people mean different things when they say Old Testament or Hebrew Bible, Um what what manuscripts were our texts um, translated from and, you know, uh, what translation decisions did we read with the Kativ or the Kare? That is uh, within the Masoretic texts, you know, different um, possibilities for vocalizations of a particular word. Uh, it, all of these things we talk about in seminary settings and university settings a lot. Um, What we think, what I think, the church and the academy both are not very good at is finding the places where those kinds of observations matter for the life of the church. Mm -hmm. And I'm not talking about suddenly making everybody in the pews study Hebrew or something. But is there something about um, the kind of uh, this this multivocity that is present? In, in the Old Testament, this, this knowledge that we have of a timeline um, that is very extensive and represents kind of different levels of power that ancient Israel had in its context. For example, all of these things that we can glean um, from biblical scholarship, um, what can we make of those for the daily life and work of the church? And so that's where I'm interested in sort of digging a little Deeper and so for, so dynamic for me means um, not as just sort of flat one version of a text, but embracing the the totality, the sort of multitude of ideas that inheres in um, what we call the Old Testament.
0: Yeah, I'll just I'll just add another canon um, to to, to sure, think, and that, that's the that's the Ethiopic Church. They have yes, the they have you. the Book of Enoch. They they right yeah. But um, it it seems to me that you, ultimately what you're um, looking at is kind of the the relevance and the and the authority of the, of the Old Testament. Would it be fair to that's that seems to be kind of the the baseline of what you're what you're going for? Um,
1: right, and I think I think I want to really dig into the the idea of authority and what that even means. Like, what do we mean when we say the text mm. is authoritative? Cause I think we bring to that word, a lot of assumptions, um, you know, about sort of power and, um, the final word and things like that. Uh, so, so how might we sort of break open this idea of authority in, um, some more expansive ways
0: mm. in your introduction, um, getting onto to that idea you state the perspective that the bible is not authoritative despite its diverse voices its cultural dependencies and its clashing ideas rather the existence of that complexity is part and parcel of its authority now that's a that's a fascinating um, sentence and and, and it, for some people you know if they if they accept that the bible is diverse in any way this means that they can and this is a, a phrase that Michael Bird um, uses, which I really like. They they can use the Bible as a buffet, you know, just take whatever they like and just leave whatever they don't like. Um, they'd rather do that than view it as authoritative. So, um, why is that? Is that perspective not an option for you?
1: I think so. First of all, in that sentence, I would really put the um, emphasis on it's not authoritative despite those voices, but that because of them so sort of embracing them um that that I do consider the bible authoritative but I also think we don't all mean the same thing when we say authoritative so what will it mean um to say that and I think so in that way um first of all I think we all use the bible as a buffet a little bit so even uh Churches that use the lectionary, for example, my own church uses the revised common lectionary to determine what texts are preached on and read from the pulpit each week. If you stick to that lectionary cycle, right, you're not going to read the whole Bible. Um, You're not even going to read every text from the Gospels, I don't think, Um, or at least uh, you're certainly not going to read even every book of the Old Testament, so it's, a, it's very much a sort of pick and choose thing. And um, at least in my context here in the United States, a lot of, you know, people's only exposure to the Bible is going to be what's read from the pulpit on a Sunday. Um, so in that sense, uh, there's always a little bit of leaning into some texts instead of others. Um, and... There's also stuff that's very difficult to wrestle with in the Bible. I bet we'll get into this a little bit more as we go along. But um, I think, you know, it, it's a lot easier sometimes to read, uh, you know, uh, a, a text where um, Jesus is a comforter rather than in Joshua, where it appears that God is a conqueror. And so uh, it, we all do that. We all lean into um certain texts over others, but still can understand the whole of the Bible as um, uh, being, well, you know, here in the PCUSA, we say um, the unique and authoritative witness to Jesus Christ and God's word for you today or something to that effect. And so there is this um, this sense that it is a testimony, a witness to, um, Jesus Christ, but does that mean that sort of we have to, to mimic every activity that ever occurs or is depicted in the Bible? Does it mean that we have to be comfortable with everything that's ever said? And, um, uh, does that mean we always have to read every text, um, the same way, no matter what? I think, I think no, um, I think we need some um, we need to acknowledge the, the just in the terms of intellectual honesty that we are all um, constantly trying to figure out what we mean by this idea of authority, and that we all come to it with a different
0: definition. We've obviously mentioned that for you that there is um, diverse voices in the Bible. When I think of devout Jewish interpreters, you know of the Bible. Um, they don't seem to have as many hang-ups on accepting um, diversity within the scriptures as Christians do. Um, And what do you think the reasons for this are, Um, if you could guess?
1: I don't know exactly why um, this is a more difficult thing to do in Christianity than it is in Judaism, but I think it has something to do with the way that Jewish interpretation has kind of layered upon itself ever since uh, the early rabbinic days um, when rabbis would offer commentary on a scripture passage. And sometimes they'd have different perspectives and those two perspectives are allowed to stand side by side. And then there's another layer of inter- interpretation and you know, another generation of interpreters comes along and interprets the rabbis interpreting scripture And so there's this wonderful multi-layered nature of interpretation that is considered um, authoritative um, in some way in Jewish tradition. And I think in Christianity, um, we get much more focused for whatever reason on, on getting to the right answer instead of surfacing possibilities. I think we get really, really concerned about having an answer, and that it be the right one. And I wonder if some of it is kind of the, the linear trajectory. I mean, you see it even in the canon, right, that you have the prophets at the end of the Old Testament, which are to be pointing toward something in the New Testament, you know, pointing toward Jesus, pointing toward um, the New Testament, and then even at the end of the New Testament, when you have the book of Revelation, which is pointing toward the next thing, you know, second coming, or however you wanted to, to characterize it. Um, and so, in order to to show this kind of um, dependency, you know, that the older thing has correctly predicted or correctly um, pointed to the new thing, um, then there may maybe that is where some of that emphasis on needing a right answer comes from. What do you think? You think uh,
0: Christianity, um, yeah, does yeah. this poorly? <laughs> um, well, it, w- when you what you were saying there about having the right answer, it kind of made me think of um, an author called um, Kenton Sparks. I don't know if you heard of him. Um, he wrote a book called God's Word in Human Words, and it's 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 doing something similar to your book in that it's tr- it's trying to look at critical scholarship and how it informs our understandings of biblical authority and all that. And I think he suggested for one that this idea of being right and being certain, it's, I suppose, a Cartesian notion. And it comes from rationalism, you know, figures like Descartes. And his idea would be that somehow Christianity becomes entangled with that and kind of this need of having certainty. Whereas um, now I'm not sure maybe Judaism wasn't as influenced by that perhaps. That's a possibility anyway.
1: Well, nevertheless, I think you're you're absolutely right that you can see a very different um, approach or appreciation for difference within scripture in just sort of the overall arc of Jewish tradition versus the overall arc of Christian tradition. I think we're in some ways, I, I mean, I wonder not to sound too dramatic about it, but I kind of wonder if the future of the church depends on backing off of that need to be right and embracing some of this um, this diversity instead.
0: On that note, could you give an example of um, what you see as dynamism in the Bible and perhaps begin to suggest how how you would find authority um, rather than mere disunity or, or a, just a plain old mess in, in the relevant example? Right. Um, well,
1: um, I think I want to start with Genesis 1 and 2. I won't rehash all the things that I say in the book, but there there are a lot of ways that I think the primeval history, Genesis 1 through 11, reflects this idea of dynamism. So in the book, I talk about um, how they adapt popular culture. So in the creation and the flood narratives, drawing on existing motifs and ideas from other ancient Near Eastern myths and epics, but then sort of... um, uh, deploying those to for a new purpose and with new um, ideas, but I think also in Genesis one and two, we can see a really just a, a, two answers to the fundamental question: What is God like? So, if we take that question, "What is God like?" to Genesis one and two, well, in Genesis one, God speaks creation into being: "Let there be light." Um, And it has this very cosmic feel, you know, sort of you get the sense of God hovering there over everything. Um, God is very big and in some ways kind of distant, you know, just um, creating from afar in that sense. Right. But if we come to Genesis 2, um, this is where God um, is uh, digging fingers into the dirt to make the first human um, and breathing into the nostrils of the first human um, very a very earthy kind of picture of God in Genesis 2. and then the kind of the wonderful trial and error of let me make an animal and hold it up for this first human and the human can name it but is this the right um, partner for this human? No and then just over and over I, um, and so, there's this intimacy between God and humanity that is not portrayed in Genesis one and two. Now, uh, is one of those portrayals of God right or more right than the other? Well, of course, I can't say, um, <laughs> not with some sort of sense of authority, Oh, God must be like more like Genesis two than Genesis one. Um, no, but if i if I think of those together, Right. I can think of um, the way that that those two testimonies get at um, something true about God um, and that those ideas about God's bigness and closeness or distance and closeness, uh, cosmic nature and earthy nature, something in the interplay of those um, tells me truth about God. And we, two interpreters or more, may come to sort of uh, a different, detailed conclusion about what that means. But we can see that this kind of multiplicity that's present there. Now, granted, it may be a little bit easier to take when we think of God, you know, as so big and beyond our understanding, and we want to see little glimpses of of who God is. So maybe it's easier to deal. Um, with that theologically than it would be to say, um, take on the question of, uh, whether a community should be open to outsiders like in the book of Ruth or closed off to outsiders as in the book of Ezra, you know, um, it, it may be, maybe it's easier to take, um, with Genesis 1 and 2, I don't know, but I think you can find those kinds of contrasting portrayals, not only of God, but of human relationships and certain ideas um, throughout the Bible. And so I'm looking for a way that is not about harmonizing them in the sense of evening them out, but about just sort of embracing both of them in their totality and being okay with the dissonance or contrast that they present, sort of Mm -hmm. acknowledging it and living with it.
0: It's kind of how two two pieces of art, even though there's dissonances between them, they can they can still, you know, they still have something in them, you know. Um, so right, I
1: think... and I think I, just to follow up a little on that, um, I think you know another goal of this book is to bring the insights of critical biblical scholarship to bear on um, the church, and you know, source critics would say, well, we have two authors the priestly author and the Yahwistic author, or, you know, however we want to divide those or describe them, maybe they were put together by a priestly editor. Um, and those, those details are really, I think, um, uh, important and influential in how we trace dissonances throughout the Pentateuch. And so I think, um, it's good, it's good to have that and to be okay with that. But the, and then the, But the the very basic differences that we see between Genesis 1 and 2, we can see that with our bare eyes, right? No one has to have a theological degree to be able to say, gosh, this portrait, I like that word, of God in Genesis 1 seems different than this portrait of God in Genesis 2. So critical biblical scholarship will give us some more language and some more details perhaps. Um, But I also want to emphasize that Nobody has to study theology formally um, ever to
0: read the Bible fruitfully. Could you maybe just mention um, some other differences that exist between the two Genesis accounts, just just for any listeners you know who might be curious?
1: Sure. Um, well, uh, we have the order of creation. You know, Genesis one is very particular about what's created on the first day, second day, and then humankind is kind of the pinnacle of creation on the sixth day um, and is given dominion over the earth. And then God rests on the seventh day, but in Genesis two um, uh, there's no plant in the earth. Uh, no, nothing has grown. Um, at that point, the Lord God forms the human from the dust of the ground and then um. Then the animals are created, right? To try to be the human's partner. So things are in a different order. Um
0: and of course, another one, another big one would be that Genesis one uses the term Elohim um, yes. to refer to God. And um the chapter two um, uses a divine name, which I won't pronounce because I'm too superstitious. Uh but, um <laughs>
1: Well, I think it can be helpful also for your listeners, um, for the reminder that in many English translations of the Bible, when you see small caps L-O-R-D, Lord, that that is translating the divine name, which is not uttered, um, usually or written out, particularly in Jewish tradition, though it is in, um, uh, most academic settings, but, um, to, to, if you if you think of that as a name rather than a kind of generic idea, Lord, um, that can help I think bring some clarity to your reading the sort of more generic idea of God Elohim versus the very specific this God by this name the God of Israel. Mm,
0: yeah. So another example of perhaps a, a dissonance um, in in the Bible um, that isn't smoothed over is. Um, the wisdom literature. So um, the various books that you have, Ecclesiastes, Job, Proverbs, some would add Song of Songs as well, which is uh, the the controversial one, but they they seem to have somewhat differing perspectives on how life works out for the good and the wicked. And so how would you approach um, this particular example, do you think? That's a super
1: example. I mean, I think of... Job and Ecclesiastes, um, as the descent tradition, as it's often called. So, if you think of Proverbs as a kind of um, baseline for wisdom ideas um, in the Old Testament, um, it, that kind of lays out, you know, this very observational approach to life and to theology. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and if you just follow the law love the Lord and follow the Torah, um, things will go well. Um, Psalm one is also a great example of that kind of mainstream wisdom tradition, you know, like a tree planted by the water. Um, happy are those (laughs) who follow the law of the Lord. They're not like the wicked, right? Um, the, the, Lord loves the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. That that kind of language, you know, that you need to to love God for good outcomes in daily life. Um, and of course, we can look around and see many times that that is absolutely true. That keeping honest scales in your business will give you a good reputation and help your business flourish. For example, there's a lot of kind of economic language in Proverbs, but then you also know that you can go along like that for a while. And then suddenly you see these people lying and cheating all over the place and they're prospering and no one seems to be holding them to account. And they are, that's the way of the wicked. And yet they are not perishing. They are flourishing. So, so what is up with that? (laughs) And so you have this, um, this, Descent tradition that is held within the Bible, right within the canon, right there near Proverbs um, of Ecclesiastes and Job. And Job, in some ways, sort of maybe easier to see in Job this idea of descent. Job, the righteous man who does everything right, even offering extra sacrifices for his kids just in case they might have sinned. And then you know the adversary of the Lord comes and says, "Hey, you know, um, I bet I can make this guy Job curse your name or uh, uh, renounce you." And uh, well, and I should say that the first one who even brings it up is, of course, God in the story of Job. Have you considered my servant Job? Um, anyway, that that just what seems to be just no reason at all, suddenly everything is taken from Job. And he he says throughout those poems, if I could just present my case to God, I would be found righteous because this is how it's supposed to go. Meanwhile, his friends who are sympathetic for a while are finally like, look, Job, if you're suffering so much, you must have done something to deserve it. Um, But he maintains, no, of course, I haven't. Um, And so uh, there's a wonderful dialogue that comes there, sort of contained there within the book of Job, but also across those books, Proverbs and some of the wisdom psalms and Ecclesiastes and Job to say, the world works like this until it doesn't. And how do we then engage with God when it doesn't go the way that it seems to have been promised to go.
0: Mm. Jesus seems to have a lot of fondness for this dissenting tradition as well, doesn't he? For example, you know, the, when they're asking about the man born blind and they say, uh, who sinned this guy or his mother and, uh, uh and Jesus just says, you're totally, you're totally wrong about that. <laughs> so it's, it's interesting, right. isn't
1: it? Mm. I think that this, Idea that people who suffer have done something to deserve it is really pervasive even today. Um, Just, and I think part of it comes from this human impulse to to see someone else's suffering and worry, could that happen to me? Right? Could it happen to me just out of the blue? Let me think of the reasons I can list to say why that will not happen to me because that's very frightening. Um, so I think that there's a lot of room in our um, life of faith together to consider this is very basic idea that people have been considering forever. Why do bad things happen to good people? And um, the, the, the Old Testament, um, this wisdom um, example that you've lifted up is such a, a great place Um, a place that gives us texts to work with and not just abstractions and that we can see, you know, gosh, I really can identify with, um, proverbs, you know, I try to live my life. Right. And that often goes well. And yet I also identify with Job and his despair and it gives us, it gives us a a space to talk about those things. Mm,
0: Absolutely. So, um, for you, what are some of the most challenging parts of the Old Testament to view authoritatively, and um, um, how how would you address maybe give an example of how you might address one of them?
1: So, any texts that depict sexual violence against women, for instance, in the Old Testament, and there are many, unfortunately, sometimes that's in the story, kind of narrative depiction, and sometimes. Particularly in the prophetic literature, it's metaphorical or kind of symbolic. Um, This idea of Israel um, uh, playing the whore will be the the phrase that uh, how it's often translated and that um, going after other gods. And so then um, sometimes sexual violence or shaming or uncovering nakedness is um, uh, written there as the, the kind of metaphorical punishment for Uh, Israel or Zion. And I just, I think that there there are so many (laughs) problems um, with uh, just sort of uncritically importing those ideas into everyday discourse. Um, And so those are really hard texts for me to want to study, let alone revere in some way. But I think the first thing that my work here is trying to emphasize is that, that those are not the only stories or the only images or, um, the only ideas. So there's so much, um, how would we put those, um, ideas in conversation with other texts like, um, the Hebrew midwives in Exodus one who, um, uh, save those, um, children save those baby boys from death uh by playing on uh pharaohs on prejudices you know oh the hebrew women are like animals um they are it's often translated as lively or something like that but uh they're there are they're animals and of course we can't get to them fast enough they've already given birth by the time the midwives get to them right that that kind of um Turning, turning Pharaoh's prejudices against him to save those children um, is a very interesting act of of power and empowerment um, from those women. Which is just to say that the 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 story of the Old Testament with regard to women is not only those texts of violence against women, but also of these triumphs. And so, in that regard, the stories of the Old Testament. And not just stories. Of course, there are prophecies and poems and all of that. Um, they they reflect right. <laughs> the, the they reflect real life, the experiences of women not only in the ancient world, um, but also today. And so, in that way, we get a place. We get sort of a footing from which to approach the really difficult questions of any era, because there's there's a, a, a place we can come together around a common
0: text. Mm. Mm. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. And, and I, you know, Ezekiel, for example, that, that would be a, a culprit of a, a place that I just don't like to spend yeah. a lot of time. And, you know, uh, as I mentioned before, if you're reading the lectionary or you're going to church, those are also texts that don't come up in uh, much of your sort of Sunday to Sunday um, worship. And so on the one hand, that's good, right? I don't think that those texts are um, helpfully engaged from the pulpit in a multi-generational context. <laughs> I don't know that there's uh, uh, are many ways to engage those fruitfully. Mm. But that doesn't mean that Christian public leaders um, can't be ready to uh, to deal with them because, you know, we so often say, uh Gosh, I wish people would read the Bible more. But then they do. And we're horrified because they'll come to us, right, with these questions about, my gosh, what is happening in Ezekiel 23? Like, I, <laughs> what am I supposed to do with that, right? And so I think instead of saying, oh, you know, um, that's hard, but we'll just move on. That that does not um, uh, convince people of the gospel, frankly, like an unwillingness to engage in the totality of our texts, right, Mm -hmm. is no way to evangelize.
0: Yeah, and uh, maybe we'll um, move on to um, just focus on chapter three of your book for a little bit, because I think certainly uh, what we've been discussing so far is, is controversial, but I would say this is probably the most controversial part of the book. You state that dissonances in the text can invite today's churches to consider whether some discordant ideas within faith communities can stand together unresolved in life-giving ways. Um, now, I really like that, you know, in principle, um, that idea. But then I think of, you know, um, how do we or do we need to reconcile this thesis with um, the Apostle Paul's constant request that the church be unified and of one mind um, was, was he being too idealistic or or how would he inform what what you're saying here?
1: Well Paul certainly knew a lot about conflict and dissonances and discordant um, communities uh, so uh, absolutely I mean that's that's precisely he's worried he's worried what do we do with how why are we so um at odds with one another I would also say that that Paul um Paul is quite the interpreter of texts, right? So he is stepping into this same kind of stream of interpretation and reinterpretation that Jesus does in the gospels that comes to these um, Hebrew scriptures and says, um, you, you know, Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say to you, um, uh, Paul is also uh, an interpreter and he's, he's interpreting the life of Jesus um, and, and the work of the, his churches there. And so I think, um, I don't know that I'd say he's too optimistic or idealistic, um, but I do think that his, this idea of being unified or being of one mind I'm not sure that I'm confident that uh, that can ever mean that we agree on every interpretation because like baked into Jesus and Paul and also already in the Old Testament is this idea that we interpret and reinterpret for a new day. So I'm hoping that we can acknowledge that and find new places of unity now I don't know what those look like. What I can do as a biblical scholar is to show the way that the Bible participates in this, and I'm hopeful that church leaders might find a sort of spark of an idea that they, who know much more about the everyday life of the church uh, and particularly their own congregations, can um, c- can find help us all find right those new places of unity. But I I hope and think it could not be a unity that erases diversity, because I think that the Bible does not erase diversity. So what would it mean to think of unity not as an opposite of diversity, but as something else entirely? And and I think think we have a sort of urgent need to at least try to think about that idea in new ways um, in the church.
0: Mm, Okay. A couple of other questions before we uh, leave it for today. So um, one thing that you touched on briefly is um, the problem of Marcionism in, in the church today. Now, could you briefly explain um, for the audience what you mean and um, perhaps whether this is something you have encountered a lot in your own experience over the years? And I'd also be curious to know um, whether you have, have you ever been accused of being a, a Marcionite or anything <laughs> like that? or.
1: Um. Not, not to my face. Okay. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> um, so when I say Marcionism, I mean, so of course that's the name of a second century uh, Christian who basically dismissed um, the the Old Testament um, and sort of Jesus's roots in the Old Testament um, and also talked about uh, the God of the Old Testament, basically. And I think, you know, I think this idea Uh, is actually, yes, alive and well, unfortunately, um, this idea that, uh, you know, gosh, the Old Testament, it's so violent. Um, I want the God of the New Testament. So, uh, and I get that a lot, even from, you know, my first semester seminary students, who they're not saying, um, I'm going to just totally dismiss the Old Testament, but isn't the idea always just to you know prop up my ideas about Jesus if <laughs> rather than to fully engage with the old testament and its continuities into the new testament and so forth um and uh, uh and when there are problematic places or places they deem problematic in the old testament to say eh, i'm just gonna pretend like it's not there basically or hope hope i'm not gonna uh, deal with that, and so yeah, I think I think that that's there. And I, I think just emphasizing, to, just saying to my students, you know, or asking them, what do you think the scriptures were that Jesus was reading? Right? I mean, what, what was Jesus's Bible? Uh, what does it mean, right? To to um, to study the Old Testament, knowing that those are the scriptures and that is the tradition that shapes jesus and even just that kind of gentle reminder helps them to think well maybe uh, maybe i should dig in more um to the old testament but yeah uh, i think it's
0: a and well yeah and i i always i always wonder like when when people say you know i i don't like the god of the old testament but I like the god of the new testament it kind of feels like they haven't read the new testament a lot either because you know jesus isn't actually this like nice Teddy bear that we that we think like he is he can be really firm and strict when he wants to be you know so I think that's always something we have to emphasize too.
1: Yeah, and crucifixion is quite violent. Yeah, yeah, there's there is violence in the New Testament as well. But yeah, so emphasizing same God, same God, and so what does that mean to take them them the testaments um, together instead Mm. of separately?
0: Can the thesis of your book be applied um, to the New Te- Testament witness as well? And I wonder, are you going to have a book out in, in two years called uh, uh, The New Testament for a Simple World or uh, <laughs> like
1: that? Um, well, I can guarantee you that I will not have a book out about the New Testament in two years. I'm going <laughs> to stick with the Hebrew Bible here. Okay. Let my New Testament colleagues run with those texts. <laughs> um, but I do think, um, I I do think there is a lot of overlap uh, in terms of things I've identified or I'm trying to highlight in the Old Testament um, and what's there in the New Testament. I mean, the the existence of four Gospels is a great example of that, right? That they're they don't all say. The same thing. They don't all tell the same stories, and they don't all tell them the same way. Some of them offer additional commentary. You know, I think about Matthew, who's always trying to link things back to um, uh, the prophets, for example, or, or other scriptures as well. Um, versus a very stark presentation in Mark, or the way that Mark has the women fleeing from the tomb. You know, in that earliest ending of the Book of mm. Mark, the women running away afraid from the empty tomb versus luke wrapping everything up in a bow kind of you know uh, everything's taken care of i mean this 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 dynamism is there so i want the church to help me think about and i want to help the church think about like, how can we embrace this uh, all of this difference instead of trying to say well um, I'm gonna I'm gonna think of a topic and I'm gonna go to the Bible and say the Bible says X Y Z about it. Right? That's we do that. Uh, even whether more progressive or more conservative, um, our tradition we we do that. Uh, I think everybody sort of does that. Well, I'm just gonna use this um, uh, little piece of scripture and say this is what the Bible says about it. But how can we bring into our discourse in the church? Um, uh, uh, a love for the many, many differences that we find in Scripture, and what would it mean? How do we translate that um, into um, a way forward that is less about a kind of ideological polarization, but more about how how can we live in these differences
0: together? I suppose before we before we close, I might ask. If there's someone listening to this who's um, trying to, you know, they they accept, you know, your idea that you know the Bible has this dynamism and this diversity to it, and they're they're trying to sort it out. What would your um, your main advice to them be? Besides, obviously, to get your book.
1: <laughs> well, yes, yes, that that first no. Um, gosh, well, I guess um, two things. First of all, keep reading. Um, keep reading. I think that there are a lot of places in the Bible that make us maybe want to, to stop either because they're hard, just hard to read, you know, not fun, lots of lists of names, things like that, or because they're, they're difficult to, um, reckon with. But if you keep reading, um, there will be something else to spark your imagination and to put into conversation, um, with, with those texts. Um, and I think the other thing is to, to really, um, I think it's easier to try out new, even threatening ideas. That is in the sense of kind of things that feel destabilizing to one's faith. If you have a, a center from which you can go, um, but like, uh, so for me, um, uh, for me, it's, in life and in death, we belong to God. And the reason that I know that that is the thing that no matter what questions I have about theology and faith, I will always come back to is because in a uh, there was a terrible tragedy in my family, and I was um, just a week later to give a faith statement as part of a kind of Lenten um, program at my church. And I just, everything sounded like a platitude, you know, just like, you know, about suffering or about justice or about things like that. What is it that I can say uh, to these people who are looking for a word from me? And that was the thing that was on my heart to say, in life and in death, we belong to God. And so so I encourage you, like, if it, if it feels um, scary, which I think it can be, to sort of say, well this part of scripture seems to be saying something very different than this part. And I don't know how to reconcile those to, to know for yourself, like this is a thing, a a kind of uh, the, the heart of your faith and uh, that you have, you have a heart to, we all have a heart to our faith and that it's um, something that will be uh, a kind of core that's unshakable. And I think if you can name that for yourself, then you, then it can be very freeing to just sort of go into scripture and, um, uh, have fun to, to play, to see, um, to, to open up possibilities. Mm. Cause at the end of the day, all of this, um, dynamism is, is not to me about proving or disproving something, but about expanding our, knowledge of God to come back to a good Calvinist phrase right to to expand our knowledge of God and that we we can't do that by closing off possibilities but only by sort of opening them up
0: mm. and I think uh for me and I don't know how um, sensible this is because you know I haven't thought through it in a s- systematic way but I think this kind of the act of wrestling with with the Bible. Um, and wrestling with difficult parts of it. I like to think of it as a form of worship, you know, that it's, yes. that it's, there's a sense in which that is, that is part of, part of worshiping God, I think.
1: Absolutely.
0: It's been great to to speak to you, uh, Cameron. Thanks, thanks awesome. a million for, for coming on.
1: Thanks so much for having me. I've enjoyed our conversation. And thanks for so carefully uh, reading my book and <laughs> having such great questions. I appreciate it.